0: Well, good morning and welcome to our service. It's Palm Sunday. It's strange for us to think that it might be Palm Sunday and uh, we're not able to be together as we uh, always have been. And yet here we are. And so as we begin our time of worship this morning, uh, I want to read from Matthew's gospel and particularly of uh, the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. In Matthew 21, we read, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem... And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Let's pray together as we begin uh, this service. Our loving Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning yet again confessing, Lord, that we perhaps are struggling with the strangeness of this experience. Lord, that we are gathering, in a sense, to worship in our separate homes. Lord, this is the first time we will perhaps have celebrated Palm Sunday separately like this. And Father, we pray that even though we are absent from one another in body, we would be present with one another in spirit. That as one family, we would be able to worship together as we mark this point in Jesus' life as he goes into Jerusalem towards the very end, the climax of his ministry, towards his death and his resurrection. And Lord God, as we read of Jesus entering Jerusalem, we pray that as the crowd sang Hosanna and glorified Jesus in that place at that time, Lord, that we might be able to do the same, that we might add our voices to theirs and sing Hosanna, glory to God in the highest for all that you have done in sending your Son to be our Saviour. Lord God, we thank you for this time. And we ask that you would bless each one of us, Lord, as we meet together in prayer and around your word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your many blessings to us, even in these difficult times. And ask that you would continue with us, especially in this time. In Jesus' name. Amen. So as we come to uh, God's word, we're continuing our sermon series in Genesis. Reading in Genesis uh, chapters 9 and 10, looking at the the tail end of the flood story and the movement uh, of the the people of the world through this time of judgment and on out the other side into a time of new creation. And as we think about our approach to Easter and uh, all that we'll celebrate, albeit separately, um, over the next week as we uh, head into Easter Sunday, it's right that we think about this theme of new creation. We understand that we are new creations in Christ and we'll consider that a little bit this morning uh, as we consider Genesis 9 and 10 together. But as we read this passage and we hear of Noah stepping out of the ark into a world made new, it's right that we hold that together with this image of Jesus coming into Jerusalem in order not just to make Jerusalem new, uh, but the whole world, us included. And so we read from Genesis and we're going to read... Uh, from the tail end of chapter 8 into uh, the middle portion of chapter 9. So we'll pick up our reading in Genesis chapter 8 verse 20. And there we read, after Noah comes out of the ark, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. For your lifeblood I will require a reckoning, from every beast I will require it, and from man, from his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. This is the word of the Lord and we ask God's blessing upon our reading of it this Sunday. I want to ask you this morning, if you had the opportunity to start everything again from scratch, what would you do? What changes would you make? I mean that in terms of the whole world. We could start with a broad, uh, a broad view and think, how would we change the entirety of the world and, and make it more suitable, more fitting, a more pleasing place for us to live? But we might think actually about our own lives. As much as we can see loads of problems in the world around us, whether it might be nature or um, whether it's in the political world or uh, whether it's through uh, war or whatever it might be, we can see many things that we would change in that particular sphere. Uh, How about your own life? As we look towards Easter, it's a great opportunity for a little bit of reflection, a bit of uh, self-reflection considering who we are and the kind of lives that we're living. And so I want to ask you, how would you change your life if you had that opportunity? How would it be different? One of the things that we often do when we think about changing the world around us or changing ourselves is we notice the things that are not right, the things that we would have uh, differently. And we can sometimes slip into this uh, idea of of judging God, that God has somehow got it wrong, that it needs to be done right. I once listened to a, a pastor of a church uh, saying that his uh, ministry had begun actually with more of a focus on church planting. And he said with uh, uh, the hubris of uh, a young Christian, he'd looked at churches all around him and noticed all the problems and difficulties and thought, well, I'll do it right and I'll go and plant a church and the church that I plant will be uh, the right kind of church. And with time, he realized that would just never be the case because he was involved. And so it is with us. We can look at things and think, well, other people, perhaps even God himself, hasn't done a terribly great job. And perhaps we could do something better. If only these changes were put into place, then everything would be well again. So what changes would you make? How would things be different? This is Palm Sunday, as I've said, and uh, on this Sunday, we think particularly of Jesus coming into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey. He is acclaimed by his disciples openly, boldly. They sing hosannas, they worship him as a king, the king of the Jews coming into his kingdom to take his, uh, his earthly throne. Now we know, because we were able to read just a short number of chapters ahead, that this won't last This great jubilant cry of Hosanna to Jesus will ultimately turn into cries of crucify Him at worst or at best into the silence of disciples slinking away as they deny they ever knew this man and don't want to be, um, uh, don't want to come under the same condemnation that He has by being identified along with Him. But as Jesus comes into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he comes with one express intention, and that is to change the world. He comes not just to change Jerusalem, although he will change Jerusalem forever, but he changes everything he touches. It doesn't matter what it is. When he enters Jerusalem, he will leave it a completely different city to the one it was before his arrival. He comes to his throne, which we find is actually, ironically, a cross. A way is made open for him to enter into the city, to go to that place. And as he dies, we find that he changes the people of that city forever, such that we in the 21st century in Livingston are here today and we worship together because of that change that was begun 2,000 years ago in Jerusalem. Jesus comes and he makes a way for sins to be forgiven. Not just in a generic sense that the world somehow might be a a vaguely better place. There might be less natural disasters or none. That sickness might not have the impact that it did before his death. Not in that way. But he comes to change the people of the world fundamentally. By making a way for their sins to be forgiven fully and freely. Through simply coming to him and asking to be forgiven. He brings God into the lives of any who would have him in a way that no human being has ever experienced since the days of Adam that we've just read about a few short weeks ago. In fact, you could make the argument, I think, that not even Adam had the kind of relationship that we have with God as a result of Jesus' work on the cross that brings us into close communion with him, brings us boldly before his throne, we're told. To bring our prayers to Him and to hear from His Word. Jesus is about the work of making us new creations. That is what Pam Sunday points towards. That is part of His work in making all things new. His work goes beyond that, of course. We understand that He doesn't just make people new, He will one day make all things new, the heavens and the earth, all of creation will be remade as we read in Revelation. And this morning, as we read from Genesis 8 into chapters 9 and 10, we're going to see four ways that Jesus changes us, that makes us new creations. And these four changes mark four foundation stones, if I can put it that way, in our lives that put us where we need to be to know God and love him and serve him and worship him, but to live faithfully before God in this world that changes all the time, whether socially or politically or whether it's through uh, natural disasters or disease like the ones that we are facing, so that we are always able to know that we are safe in God's hands that we are secure in his presence, but also that we are able to glorify him in all things regardless of how difficult the times in which we live may happen to be personally or nationally or internationally. And as we begin uh, our study of, of chapters 9 and 10, we find in the first five verses of chapter 9 that being a new creation enables us to truly love life. Noah steps out of the ark uh, with his family and into a whole new world compared to the one that was left behind. Now there's a sense in which it is a continuation of the old world. That because Noah and his family are there, sin still exists in the world. Creation is still corrupted by sin. That won't be changed until Christ ultimately comes. But we find that the world has been wiped clean of a society that was focused only on itself on its own destruction, on war and on killing, on selfishness and whatever else it might be that we've read of in previous chapters uh, as sin uh, increases its grip on this children, the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And we noted the language that Moses has used that in previous chapters that shows that God is creating the world anew through the cleansing of the flood and the establishing of Noah as a sort of new Adam, and that's carried on in chapter 9. He tells Noah and his family, just as he told Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, that he expects Noah to go out into the created world, this new created world, and to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill it. He expects Noah. To have dominion over the animals, in fact, he changes their diet He um, previously with Adam and Eve, he had given them every tree and, and every fruit and seed that had. Uh, grown in the world they could eat with the exception of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil uh, and now as Noah and his family step off of the ark we find that God broadens their diet to include animals and fish and birds and everything that creeps on the ground the only restriction is that they uh, don't eat the blood of those animals and we'll come on to see uh, why that might be significant just a, a little bit later but Noah is expected not to immediately Devour every living creature he can see. He's expected to care for the creation, to shepherd it, to, the proper word might be animal husbandry, to ensure that the animals are cared for, that they flourish, and out of that flourishing abundance, Noah and his family are able to be sustained. The flood has wiped away the effect of sin in the world, however, it hasn't changed Everything completely we find that the animals will be frightened of Noah and we can see that in the natural world today as uh, animals shy away from people, wild animals uh, shy away from people or attack but out of fear uh, for a predator that might uh, attack them. The human race is called to have dominion and control just as Adam and Eve were called to have dominion and control. But God tells them, you must take care not to eat the blood of the animals that you kill, that you use for food because blood is precious. It is what fills the body with life in that sense. And so if you eat it, you are eating the stuff of life itself. You are disrespecting life itself, which is very interesting given they are allowed to end the lives of these animals in order to eat them. God still wants them to see that they are not being disrespectful to his created order because God alone gives life to an animal and it's not for them to simply consume the life blood of the animals that they eat. And if an, a human is killed by another human or by an animal, then blood must be given in payment. Blood must be shed for that death. And the reason for that is that man is not simply a living being made by God as the animals are. but Man is made in God's image. He is special. And so God expects a special set of circumstances should somebody take it upon themselves to have the place of God in ending life, prematurely we might say. That is God's right and God's right alone. And so if man sheds another man's blood, then his blood is to be shed in payment. And Moses breaks the story of the new creation at this point to insert this little section of Uh, The law that is delivered to Israel by Moses as he leads them from Egypt to the promised land in order to have them understand the nature both of what they've experienced in Egypt as they slaughtered the lambs and they painted the lambs blood on the lintels and doorposts of their homes in order to set them free. There was a blood price that was needed in order to set them free from slavery as a picture of what is to come with the sacrifices and the tabernacle and the temple and ultimately ending in Jesus himself. But it's also to point them forward to the seriousness of their sin, to have them understand the gravity of what is required of them, that if they were to pay for their own sin, it is so serious, their own blood would be required. And so it's necessary to have a substitute that you can uh, place your sins upon, as it were, that can take your place under the knife and die your death. Moses wants the people of Israel to understand that this isn't something that he has just concocted as um, some sort of um, set of rules or laws. to to govern the people. This isn't something that God has just decided uh, needs to be implemented at this point. Moses is showing them that this is the way it has been in a sense from the very beginning. Blood must be shed in order for them to be free from the effects of sin. And as Noah steps out of the ark and enters a world free from violence and the fear of death, and there is no one, and, and... nothing to fear in this new creation for Noah he can truly love life for the gift of God it is and this is why the law these rules have been put in place so that he can understand how wonderful a gift life is and live out that life to the fullest for God's glory. The reason that we are now able to love life as Christian people today is that we are given not just uh, life, our life's blood by God when he creates us, when he knits us together in our mother's wombs as we read. But that we are given true life in Christ through the shedding of his blood on, on our behalf because of our sins. And that is how serious our sins are. I don't know if you've ever thought about that, that the lifeblood of the Son of God himself was required, was needed to be shed on your behalf so that you would be set free, pardoned from your sins. That is how dire our situation was when we were still sinners. And it may be today that you watching this online or listening to this, uh, at home on uh, on a pre-recorded uh, CD or however you're, you're listening to this m- may not know whether you really are a Christian or not. Or maybe you know that you definitely aren't. And I want to, to challenge you today before I uh, encourage you, but to challenge you to consider seriously that the gravity of your situation, that you stand before a God who cannot Countenance, sin, he cannot have any part of it and stand guilty, Scripture says. And the only way that can be put right is not by trying really hard to be a good person, to make yourself acceptable to God. You can simply never be good enough. Blood has to be shed. And Scripture says it's either our blood, we pay for our own sins, we die, in which case it's too late to do anything about uh, our situation after that. Or we have Christ come and be our sacrifice, take our place, die our death, shed his blood so that we might be put free. And I want to encourage you if you have asked Christ to be your savior and all you must do is ask him to pardon your sins and to turn your life around to the way it ought to be lived instead of the way you once have. And if you've done that, then I want to encourage you that you are free from the penalty of past sins. You are free from the the slavery to sin that once held you in its grip today. So you can live in a way that is pleasing to God. But you are also free in eternity future to live with and love and glorify God forever. Because when Jesus dies he makes one perfect payment for all our sins. The writer of Hebrews says one payment, one sacrifice and then it is finished. And we can be free from the constraint of sin that keeps us focused on ourselves, on our own satisfaction. And more than that, to encourage you even more, if that were possible, it frees you from the fear of death that that shapes almost everything we do in day-to-day life. How much of what we do is, is in place in our lives to make sure that we are safe, to make sure that we do not get sick, to make sure that we do not die. Uh, We spend our whole lives desperately trying to ensure that we stay looking young and, and youthful, to ensure that we're healthy and, and to find any sort of way to stave off thinking or facing up to the reality of death. But we're free from that as Christians. We don't need to worry about it because we have a life that is completely held in God's hands. So even though we die, we will still have life in him. We are raised up to be seated with him in heaven for all eternity. And nothing can take that away from you once Christ has paid the price for your sins. The only one who could take it away is Christ. And he promises never to do so. We no longer need Fear death and so we can truly appreciate the wonder of life for what it actually is. We can live our day-to-day lives not constantly trying to stave off the thought of death or, or the fear of it, the thought of growing older or whatever it might be. We're able to enter into the joy of life knowing that every moment we live as a gift from God and every moment we've received as a gift from God can be used for his glory and for the building up of the people around us, knowing that that life is pleasing to God. This is so important at the time that we're living at the moment in this global pandemic, this coronavirus pandemic. We don't see this whole situation the way the world does as a Christian people. Death is not the end. We don't need to be fearful of getting sick and dying. And God certainly does heal those who are sick, sometimes miraculously and sometimes through the, the ministrations of doctors and nurses and so on. Very often we find that Christians get sick and die much the same as the rest of the world does. But for us in sickness and death there is no fear. Because what lies beyond is totally different for us. Our whole perspective, our destination, our future has been completely changed. And so because of that, and because we can enter into a joyful existence, a joyful life, it's right that we continue to worship God fully, as fully as we are able to do in this circumstance, uh, even though we're separated, because he is so, so good to us. And he blesses us in so many ways, and his love endures forever towards us because of what has been accomplished on our behalf by Jesus, his son. We must... Continue to tell other people about this new life because it is truly amazing and fulfilling and joy-filled. And others can experience that same freedom from fear to experience the full joy of life just as we have. And we must continue to serve Christ faithfully and sacrificially by building one another up, by giving generously to each other of our time and our resources so that we are all blessed together as a family, so that we are all able to enter into the joy of life, even in difficult times, as one family in Christ. When Easter arrives next week, how much of our thinking will be about the life that Christ gives us And how wonderful it is to be alive and to worship God and serve him here and now in this place. Being a new creation enables us to truly love life. But we find moving on in verses 6 through 17 that being a new creation enables us to love God's law. Now that might seem a bit of a strange thing to say. We don't think about loving laws. They're necessary perhaps. Perhaps we think about laws as being a bit of a burden that constrain us, that hold us down when we would rather be free to come and go and and do as we please. But the reason that Moses writes this passage in the way that he does is to link the law that he is delivering to the people of Israel from Sinai, summed up in the Ten Commandments, with the way that God has created the world and ordered it first in Genesis chapter 1. And then in Genesis chapter 9, as he makes his covenant with creation, he remakes the creation and blesses Noah and his family. Moses is trying to help the people of Israel understand that the law they're being called to follow is rooted in what it means to be a human, first and foremost. It's not something additional or optional for really religious people. It's for all people. Without the law, they are nothing, but by obeying it, Moses is telling them, they have a life with God. They have access to God, the God who is able to make them, who calls them to uh, love him and follow him. And the law is how they do that, because the law describes what God is like and how God would have his people behave if they want to enter into that kind of relationship with him. And if they don't obey the law, they can't have that kind of life with God. But not only does it do that, it doesn't just point backwards to the way that you have lived your life or even to the way you live your life here and now. It also points forwards. And Moses recounts a little section of law in this passage, that little bit that looks like a verse of poetry perhaps in in your Bible, and goes on then to talk about God's promise, the sign of his covenant with Noah and all creation, not to destroy the world again by a flood, and pictured in this uh, rainbow that is mentioned in the text. In the rainbow, God is pointing all who see it forward to a time when there is no more sin in the world to corrupt it. Now, the rainbow is an interesting picture. It's one that I've seen, I can't tell you how many times um, since I left my house this morning to come down to the church to record this. Almost every window in some houses has a picture that's been painted or Um, drawn or coloured in by a child of a rainbow and I find that fascinating because the vast majority of the houses I've seen and and ones that I know who lives there, um, they're not Christians. They they would say that they're not part of any faith or or, um, religious group and yet they're colouring in rainbows and putting it in their windows as a sign of hope because the rainbow does symbolise hope and I find it fascinating because it's this little this little artifact, this little thing buried in in the minds of the people, particularly of of countries that have had a Christian heritage, but people all over the world, as a symbol of hope, because in the dark clouds that have um, that bring rain, we find this picture that says the sun is still shining. There is still something beyond the dark rain clouds, and that's exactly what is pictured here in Genesis. Now, um, I. Uh, I'm fascinated by by rainbows, the the frustration I always had as a a child is um, you see a rainbow but no matter how much you you walk towards it, no matter how close you think you are getting it always recedes and recedes and you're never able to actually get there, to to reach it, uh, to touch it. And the interesting thing for me I found uh, a few years ago was To see a picture of a rainbow not from um, uh, the perspective that we all have um, walking around uh, on the ground but if you see a picture of a rainbow from the air above a rainbow you find that it's not actually um, bow shaped you find a rainbow is actually uh, a circle. And the thing I find really interesting about that is um, as we look forward in Scripture from this point on, rainbows are mentioned a number of times and they are constantly mentioned sometimes uh, by the prophets like Ezekiel and then on into the New Testament as a picture of the glory of God. There's a, a a an idea carried across of of vibrancy and of light and of life and of hope and all of that mixed together. And so we find in Revelation, in at least two places in Revelation, rainbows mentioned. But particularly one in Revelation 4 where we have a, a picture given to us of the throne that God sits on in heaven. And he sits there and it's surrounded by precious stones and there is a rainbow that sits All the way around the throne of God. It is a place where his glory and his glorious grace rests. And that is exactly what we have in a rainbow, whether you view it from above as a circular one, in a way picturing that rainbow that surrounds the throne of God or um, from the perspective that we all have every day when uh, we happen to see a rainbow and are reminded of God's steadfast covenant with the world. He should have destroyed it all, but he didn't and he promised he never would through a flood until he comes again. And we find in Revelation Um, Him dealing with the world, making it a new creation, not by water this time, but by fire. And Moses wants his readers to know that the route to this wonderful future with God is mediated through the law. This leads us to see the purpose of the law, that it is ultimately to point us to Christ. That Christ comes not to abolish the law, he says, but to fulfill it in every way we find In Jesus' own words in the gospel or uh, by the writer of Hebrews uh, or Paul as he explains uh, uh, the, the position of men and women before God. That the law is given not as this massive crushing weight but as a blessing so that people might be made aware of their lack of righteousness, lack of goodness. And so be pointed towards the God of mercy and of grace who didn't destroy the world when he should have. But instead... Offered life to those who didn't deserve it. And we find that the law ultimately points forward, reveals Jesus to us and shows us the total need that we have of him. That we cannot ever live a life good enough to satisfy God's requirements, but Jesus did. Jesus lives a perfect life and then comes under the punishment of the law. Not for his own sins, but for our sins, for our sake. In order that we might be blessed that we might be given life and freedom from sin and death. If we come, turn from our sins and ask him for forgiveness. And when we turn from lawlessness, when we turn from sinfulness, when we ask for forgiveness, the law now holds no penalty over us because that has been laid upon Christ and has been paid fully. But it does give us a guide as to how we are to live if we are going to be the sort of people that live with and love and worship and serve a holy God. Christ is the way. God leads us to that wonderful future through him. Do we see the life we have in him today as leading to that and consider it truly wonderful and blessed as a result? When we think of the covenant we have with God through Jesus' death on our behalf, when we think of Of much of the Bible, do we think about it as a um, a source of life-giving joy in a sense that it instructs us how we can live and fully enjoy the life we have with this holy and righteous and yet loving and merciful God? Or do we see it as being heavy and onerous? I have to give up so much. It is so difficult to live in this way when I would much rather live the way the rest of the world does, unburdened as it were by obligation uh, or any feeling of obligation to the law. How ought we to see the law in light of this passage? Well, to know that it is um, a foundation for us so that we might know of the joyful promise of God to never again destroy the whole world, but also how to live out our lives as new creations in this world that God has saved. How ought we to see it in light of the instruction God gives to Moses to show us the way to live as God intended so that we know how to walk in his grace? We ought to see it in light of Jesus' death and resurrection in order that we might have a life that we didn't deserve, a life beyond death, a life that even now as full and as joy filled as it might be leads on to an eternity where we will be living with God forever. And as I've mentioned many times and I, I will almost certainly mention many things more like that children's song that we sing that we are being fitted for heaven to be with him there. That is the purpose of the law. That's why Moses wants his people to understand its significance, its place, and that is why in the New Testament, the New Testament writers want us to understand that the law is still there. Its penalty is gone, but it is still a joy-giving thing for us as we are equipped to live out our lives with God. This is why David says in the Old Testament how wonderful the law is. It's sweeter than honey. It's a joyful thing to sit and meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. Being a new creation helps us to love life. It helps us, enables us to love the law. Being new creations enables us also to love the Lord, as we find in verses 18 through to 29 uh, of chapter 9. When the family of Noah get off the ark, we find them settle into their new lives and Noah plants a vineyard to grow grapes and he then harvests the grapes and he makes wine and he uses that wine. He drinks it and he gets drunk. Uh, And we find this sad moment in the, the joyful new creation of the world, supposedly uh, free from sin, even in a, a a temporary, a small way. This great celebratory moment where sin is defeated finds Noah then sliding into sinful indulgence by this man, this righteous man, Noah, showing that the best of men are truly men at best. And we find then, and even Worst situation that Noah, drunk, stumbles into his tent and falls asleep uh, half naked in an undignified mess and his son Ham comes and sees his dad lying there and then goes and speaks to his two other brothers. Sort of mocking his dad the way that scripture describes it. It's like Ham simply sees his father lying there and goes and speaks to his brothers. But that's not what Moses is getting at. He's speaking in a roundabout sort of way indicating that Ham is actually mocking his dad. Look at the state of dad lying there. He has contempt as it were for his uh, father. And his brothers see and react in a different way. They're respecting their dad. Go and make sure their backs are turned take a a, a blanket between them and cover their dad over so that he is um, dignified once more. And when Noah wakes, he finds out what his sons have done. He finds out how Ham has treated him disrespectfully. And so he curses not Ham, but Ham's son Canaan, which we might think is just an absolute disgrace, a complete lack of justice. Surely Ham should be the one that is cursed. And yet what we find is a sort of symmetry to what's going on here, or at the very least a, um, a parallel to what has been happening, that as Ham disrespects his father, so Ham's son is, in a sense, disrespected, is cursed by the one whom has been uh, injured by uh, Ham's actions. And this whole situation that has been entered into by Noah and his family so quickly slides into drunkenness, fragmented families, cursing one another and so on. And Noah is, in being disrespected by his son, is pointing forward to something much bigger than we might first think. It seems harsh to curse the son of Ham. For something quite small. But actually it isn't small. As I've mentioned before. In in the ancient world. Across many cultures. There was a clear belief. That as society went at its smallest. As it were within the family unit. So it would go at its largest. As society relates to its government. And if children are disrespectful to their parents. Then they will not respect anyone in authority. Right up to the person of the emperor himself. And so it is in God's word. This is the significance, the true importance of families, of the family unit, and of particularly of fathers taking their place in bringing up loving, nurturing, but also disciplining their children. Because as it goes in the home, so it will go in the rest of their life. And as Ham disrespects Noah, what we find, he is actually living a life that will result in the disrespect of God himself, his ultimate father. Because if you don't respect one authority, why would you respect another? This is the reason for the seriousness of the curse of Noah on Ham's son. There are consequences for this kind of behavior. There is a penalty. And so Canaan's, Uh, family, Canaan himself and his family line are cursed and we find that therefore Ham's lineage, his family will always come in Noah's words third to the sons of Shem and Japheth. We see in this that Noah isn't the saviour of the world. God has wiped the world clean and yet Noah has, has ended up in this situation where cursing happens so quickly after the floodwaters recede. In Genesis 5.29, Noah's father had hoped that he would bring comfort, rest to a restless and sick world. And yet Noah is weak and all that he is begins to unravel and and fail along with his family. But he points forwards to a perfect savior who will not only carry his people through judgment as Noah did, but will also change them so that they're able to love the one in authority over them. So that their heavenly father will be at the very centre of their lives, that living for him, obeying his laws, even in the face of suffering and death, will be their priority because they've been blessed beyond measure in his son and given a place in a family they don't deserve. And so therefore, as we look at our own lives as new creations, we find that we are to love the Lord, but to do so in perhaps a, A very mundane, ordinary way that we might not first consider by loving our earthly family. And I mean that in the sense of our biological family in the home, loving and caring for one another. And I know that's hard for a great many people who do not have a happy home situation or happy memories of home life. And yet we're called, however difficult life may be, to respect our parents because the way we respond to those in authority and relate to them, however difficult or awkward they might be, will have an impact on how we relate to our Heavenly Father. And so as we love our earthly family, however easy or difficult, however painful or joyful that may be, we find that we are framed as it were in a right way to understand the relationship we ought to have with our heavenly father and for his part God takes the place not just of a father like the the parents that we have experience of in our lives but of the perfect father one who never lets his children down never leaves them never forsakes them when he disciplines it is always out of love and always so that the result might be the blessing and building up of his children parental authority doesn't come because of the worthiness of the parent but because God has appointed them to be your parents. They may not have earned your respect, they may have hurt you terribly and respecting them doesn't mean you should always do everything they tell you to do if it goes against what God would have you do, say and think but we must treat our parents with respect at all times and in turn expect that our children raise our children to respect us as their parents in order that our spiritual Heavenly Father might be treated with respect. And this might also be applied to the church, that we respect our spiritual parents in the Lord with um, the, the, the place that is due to them as they seek to instruct and build us up. And for those who are older in the faith, it is our place to take on that role of a spiritual parent and build up those who are younger in the faith. And I want to challenge you to that, that you are given an opportunity to love the Lord By loving your children, your sons and daughters, whether they be natural or spiritual. We find, lastly, that being new creations enables us to love the whole world. In verse um, 26 of chapter 9, right through to the um, end of chapter 10, we find Moses preparing to lead Israel to understand what will happen in the future between these peoples, and not just the people of Israel, but, but all the peoples of the world, in part because the, of the plans that God has for the salvation of a people for himself, and also in part because of the sin of Ham and the cursing of Canaan by Noah um, in payment as it were in answer for that sin. Moses is preparing Israel to enter the promised land but the promised land is already full of people who live there and they are the children of Canaan. They are Canaanites and we find that Moses is helping them understand how they're going to respond to the people they encounter. These are accursed people because this is the kind of family they have come from. This sort of Uh, family that does not respect God and as they looked at the Canaanites we found um, that the Canaanites sacrificed their own children to their gods. They were involved in all sorts of terrible depraved worship practices of a whole number of gods and we find that Israel wandered in the wilderness and spent their time in exile in Egypt for an allotted amount of time because the sin of Canaan hadn't reached its full extent. God was waiting for it to get to a certain point and then would use his people to bring judgment upon those in the land of Canaan and that is exactly what Moses is preparing Israel to do as they go in and prepare to take possession of the land and to wipe out the people who have lived there. But Shem and Ham, unlike Canaan, are blessed by Noah for their love and the respect that they showed their father. And we find that Shem will be blessed first, his family will be the one that Jesus ultimately comes from uh, and uh, Japheth will then come and, and live, in Noah's words, in the tents of Shem. And Japheth was the father of the people who live in the coastlands. And, and that language in the Old Testament is used to signify people who live far away, people who don't live close to the center, as it were, of Noah's family of Shem, where, where the people, ultimately the people of Israel will live. So it's basically the rest of the nations will be blessed as they come in and live in the tent of Shem. And Canaan will be the servant. They will still be able to receive a blessing if they come in under that household, under the rule of the house of Shem. But it will be the very lowest place of all. And chapter 10 summarizes not just the list of, of the whole world and all its people for us, but also the way that they will relate to one another in light of the prophecy that Noah delivers at the end of chapter 9. This isn't a full list of all the peoples of the world, but it serves as 70 different groups of people to, to picture that the fullness of the world, as it were. And in this, we have all the peoples of the world being one family because of our connection to Noah. And particularly all being subject to sin because of our lineage through Noah to Adam and Eve. But also not just in our need of a saviour, but God's gracious provision of a saviour to all who come to him. All who come under the, um, the, the protection, as it were, of Shem's tent. And what's being pictured here is the coming of Jesus as the great saviour in the line of Shem's family. Salvation will come to any people. They simply have to be a son or daughter of Adam and that is you regardless of where you come from, where you live, what your culture or your language or your skin colour might be. Salvation will come to any. Any can be adopted into God's family through the second Adam that is Jesus regardless of who you are and where you've come from. And this is the great glorious picture of Revelation, the very end of Scripture, that people from every tribe and tongue and nation will come and be gathered before the throne of God and will with one voice praise him and glorify him forever. Different families brought under the rule and reign, the blessing of Christ to the throne of God. The great challenge to us in these verses is to see that no people are outside of the need of salvation for their sin, no matter how blessed they may appear in worldly terms. Canaan is a land that is lush and bountiful and plentiful and yet its people are spiritually bankrupt and dead. In the line of Ham, Nimrod comes as a mighty man before the Lord. He found some of the great ancient cities and civilizations like Assyria and Babylon. And yet all his efforts result in a people who we'll see in the next section in Genesis thought they could build their way to heaven and take God's place. The wealth of Canaan, the mightiness of Nimrod are not enough to save them. They need God. They need to be brought into the family of Shem through Christ's work. And the same is true today. There are no people, no matter how materially blessed or powerful they might be, that don't need God's help. They might think they do, but it's not true. They must have the gospel shared with them because they are the most at risk of trusting in their own power and wealth and status to carry them through life. How is that working out in the face of coronavirus? They need the gospel and we must take it to them that they might be saved. But the great encouragement of this passage is that it doesn't matter how deplorable and how wicked you may be. You have a wonderful saviour who will come and receive you as his child, will forgive you and give you a new heavenly family and a new heavenly home, and we are the means by which, as Christian people, that good news is to be shared, that transformation will come to our world. That is why Christ sends us into the world as his disciples at the end of Matthew's gospel to make disciples of all people, of all nations, because he loves them as his father. And we will do if we are his family also. Uh, we're going to pray together. Let's come together in prayer for the world in which we live. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this world that you made and then remade in Genesis chapter 9. Lord, we thank you that you remade it in a, a desire to have sin wiped away, the world made clean and started afresh so that you might work out your promises delivered to Eve so long ago that a saviour would come and deal with the problem of sin once and for all. And Lord, as we live in light of that promise, we ask that you would work in us and through us, Lord, that salvation offered by Jesus, the seed of the woman that has come to perfectly save us, to heal us and forgive us. Lord God, we ask not just for ourselves, but for our world also. We pray that you would bless this community in which we live, of Ladywell and of Livingston and of Scotland. Lord, bless it with the message of salvation. Lord, that you would powerfully transform sinful people just like us. And Lord, have them see their lives and this whole world in a completely new way. That they might experience love and joy and life in all its fullness. Because of what Christ has done for them. If they will have him as their saviour. Lord God, we pray as well for the wider world and the present turmoil we're experiencing in light of coronavirus and ask, Lord, that you might bless us as a people as we minister to those perhaps who are sick, certainly to those who are fearful, and you might bless those, Lord, who are experiencing great fear and dread at this time. Lord, may you offer out hope and joy of life to them through your people. Lord God, may you bring comfort to them in the person of Jesus, Jesus. Who would be their saviour. And heavenly father we pray. For those who are currently sick. In hospital. Lord, may you bless them with a knowledge of your presence. We pray, Lord, that you would build them up and heal them and restore them. But Heavenly Father, we pray much more that they might know the comfort of knowing that whether life has many years left in it for them or whether it comes to an end shortly as a result of this illness, they can have life secured not just for uh, months or years but for eternity in Jesus. Heavenly Father, we pray for Boris Johnson and for Nicola Sturgeon and for all world leaders. We ask that you would bless them with wisdom, Lord, with um, the power to um, to know and do and say what is right and good. And Lord, we pray for our governments and for our nation, that Lord, in being good and obedient citizens, as far as we are able, Lord, we might uh, work with them to see a quick end to this illness. Heavenly Father... We pray as well for uh, the members of our church who are struggling at this time with um, feelings of isolation and loneliness. Lord God, we pray that you would be with them. Have us build one another up as brothers and sisters in Jesus. And Heavenly Father, in every way we ask that you would enable each one of us to go on worshipping you and glorifying your name for your great goodness to us. Lord, we ask it all in our Saviour's wonderful name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we prepare to go into the rest of a week, whatever that may happen to hold for each one of us, I want you to go in the blessing of God and the knowledge that he goes with you and he understands. May you go in the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And may the God of hope himself fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound, even in this season of fear and in uncertainty that you may abound in hope. Amen.